Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, beneath the planet of the apes. In the year 1970, the only good human was a dead human. That's right. Or mutants, in that case. Can't forget the mutants. Lots of mutants, too. Hi, this is Matt here. This is Luke. This is a sci-fi sanctuary. We've been to the planet of the apes. It's now time to go beneath that planet of the apes. Joining us today to go ape is from Mission Log Podcast, where they talk about lots and lots and all of the Star Trek. It's John Champion. Hello. Man, hey, good to be here. And I I love how you use go ape. That was very (laughs) clever of you. That's Very right. Well this is the, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like anything you say about monkeys or apes in the context of the uh, apes movies is could be considered ham-fisted. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just feel like you're aping previous works, you know? Yeah. <laughs> just monkey see, monkey do. Nice, nicely done. Now, um, for years, the only apes movie I'd seen are the first one and this one because uh, we had taped them off of Channel Seventeen, the Superstation, somewhere in the middle of the '80s. And I just watched that video until it finally, you know, ran out and sputtered out. Actually, it's probably still sitting in my parents' place. And you could watch it if you had a VHS, but hmm. I don't. <laughs> um, no, no, Luke, you just got the box set. Was this one that you oh, said no, you, so, the first two you've gotten in a fair amount? No, no, like no. Me. The first one I've seen a lot because it's, you know, an all time masterpiece. It would be on the TV on the regular. My parents made me sit down and watch it. Even if I didn't watch it, I would have absorbed it through cultural osmosis. And it wasn't until I bought the box set of all five DVDs that I even saw the second one, oh. let alone the other three. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I bought the five set DVD in the UK and I've now bought the five set Blu-ray in Japan. Um, OK, but I think last night was only my second time of watching this film. Oh, yeah, it was like my 200th time of watching it because as a kid, like, I understand the first one's like better, but, you know, a kid, you want to see all the New York stuff and the, the mutants oh, see, and, and weird songs towards the bomb. My kid brain's the other way around. I want to <laughs> see apes. And this one doesn't have enough apes. Yeah, where, are the, where are the monkeys? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you, mean, you, you mean you weren't fooled by all the humans in ape masks? That, oh, no, no. Uh, clearly, they bought off the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> they bought the merchandise from the first film. That from the first movie, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I still... Any apes, the ape scenes in this film I love, but it spends a little too much time. Well, it feels like they had a different bleak 70s sci fi script that they just plugged into Planet of the Apes. So, yeah. Uh, it does feel... with... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to ask you what's your history with the film? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, like you guys, I, I feel like uh, the first movie, I guess more like Luke, the first movie is so indelible. And I, I saw that dozens and dozens of times growing up. And then I tried to catch up on all the original sequels and you know, the animated series and all of that stuff. Um, I remembered just sort of the, the iconic, the, the, the set design, I, you know, the fabulous map paintings, like all of that stuff really stuck with me. Seeing the image of the bomb, that were the missile, that really stuck with me. But at a certain point, the storylines all kind of got mixed up in my head when you go to all the sequels. So I honestly didn't remember as much Charlton Heston as there is in this movie. Mm, that's right last night. Yeah, like I honestly, when I rewatched it, I kept thinking, okay, I remember that they start out with the stock footage from the first, and then we move on and we meet James Franciscus's character as Brent. 
But then I totally did not remember that Charlton Heston comes back and plays such an important role at the end. I uh, remembered he yeah. was in it at the end, but I remembered it as he's just in it at the end. Yeah, got it. Yeah, no, we, we spend a little quality time with him. Which Because there's even, was... you see the stock footage from the, pre- the first film. Yeah. Then you see some more shots of him, like, walking away on the horse. Yeah. But it's all, like, from a distance, and I assumed they were using a stunt double. Right, right. And then right. we actually, oh no, there are some more scenes of him close yeah. up with Nova and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was impressed with that. And um yeah, I I was I, I was doubly kind of weirded out because if we are going to have so much Charlton Heston presence in this movie from the stock footage, from even the, the moments where the mutants are lifting those images out of uh, Brent's head, like there's mm. more Charlton Heston there, there you know. And then you get all of him at the end. It makes it even stranger to cast a guy like James Franciscus in the role of Brent. Yeah. Because I like this is the weird thing about the movie. For every creative, outside-the-box, just mind-blowing idea that they have, it's like they double down on the thing that they need to do to sort of dumb it down for the audience. <laughs> so and I have to give him credit because you're making this movie at a time when sequels just weren't really a thing you know mm. studios didn't plan out a franchise the way they do now so it's bold and weird enough that you do a sequel to a movie that was as bold and weird as Planet of the Apes and is so thoughtful as Planet of the Apes but then when you do the sequel who was it that said, ooh, no, 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 the audience will be confused if we don't have a crash spaceship with a guy who looks like Charlton Heston to get us through this story? It's <laughs> 20% different. It feels <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It feels like the film they would have made if they couldn't get Charlton Heston back, but they did get Charlton Heston back. Yeah, and that's just what makes it so strange. And by the way, that's no slight on... Uh, James Franciscus, he's great. He's really good. And dude, it's cut. Oh my god, he's cut. But yeah, uh, Charlton Heston's more stacked. Oh, there you go. There you go. Very true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You get the haymaker from him. Well, let, yeah. let's get a little more into the actors. But uh, first, Luke, you're going to tell us the tale of the story of Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Some years after Taylor and Nova ride off into the sunset, astronaut Brent arrives to investigate the disappearance of Taylor's spaceship. He meets Nova and follows her to this ape city, where he sees a guerrilla expedition about to set off to kill the humans. He follows Taylor and finds an underground city of psychic maniacs who worship the bomb. The apes arrive, all hell breaks loose, and an insignificant little planet ends. Okay, there's the beep. Let's get to the actors. <laughs> um, from what if I understand, slow that down. It contained all the information. I'm like, mm, a, a yeah. He, okay, <laughs> yeah. It's, a, well it's efficient. It's efficient. Um, this is where they, I guess, they drove the truckload of money to Charlton Heston's door, but he was like, "I don't want to be in it much. I want half of my lines to be grunting, and <laughs> I want to blow up the world at the end." <laughs> So there can't be any more sequels, which didn't work, but it worked for him. So I guess, you know, (laughs) incredible. 
<laughs> See, and now, even though I know that there is a decline in the quality of, well, all of the Apes sequels, because this movie ends the way that it does, it makes me want to watch the other movies. You know, to say, like, how much more can we get? We did just blow up the world, <laughs> you know? So how much more are we going to get out of this franchise? And yet they did it. I know Matt wants to be on Actors, but I always think about the blowing up the world thing. It's the same problem that Tim Burton had when he did the remake. How do you out-ending the original Planet of the Apes? His solution, exactly. confusing bullshit. <laughs> Beneath the Planet of the Apes solution, <laughs> blow up the Earth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very true. I like um, that. And I, I got a little messed up on him. Who does, who's the narrator at the end? That actually is not... In my mind, it was Heston, I think, because he does the... Um, the Armageddon one? Yeah, the Armageddon one, but I, I don't. It, it. it was like somebody doing a Charlton well, Heston impression, but like landing on partly an Orson Welles impression. It, it, it was something. It had gravitas. So I'll give uh, him that. John, this, this name I know is going to land with you, and yeah. you're just going to say who? Uh, Paul Fries. Oh, oh my God! Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Legend, legend. Yeah, he there we go. Half the Disney ride voiceovers things, and okay, you know, yeah. like like documentaries and stuff like that. So yeah. <laughs> That yeah. makes sense. But yeah, yeah, yeah I, I had that like transmute in my mind. What I what I do like is I feel like it's partly the character of Taylor, but I feel like Heston himself brings like a, a new level of cynicism, which is amazing because in the first film, he's like laughing at his crewmates because they realize they're lost in time and stranded. And he's just like, ah, <laughs> ah, ah. and then in this movie it's like even more cynical. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and how could he not be honestly i mean he's uh, he's been through it so yeah now the one thing that i really was wondering is who gave him the disco suit because after the church ceremony they make uh they make brent run around in a loincloth again but uh heston's got his disco suit so it's like what's up with that everything about the mutants raised so many more questions like uh where did they get their food where do they get their clothes? Um, where do they make their masks? You know, they, there's a lot of industry happening with the mutants. So I guess if Trump hasn't been there long enough, they could just be like, here, you get your own disco suit. Yeah. Yeah, he might. Have, I got the impression that he turned up. They'd been like, we're worshiping the bomb. And he's just like, yeah, okay. And joined them. <laughs> and he'd only recently been put in that jail for some Mr. Manor. <laughs> right, right. Probably call them bastards. That's what yeah. happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of his go-to. So yeah, we we did talk a little bit about James Francesca, but I guess well, he's well, you say he's he's ripped, not stacked. Okay, mm. he's he's got yeah. definitely a softer side than Heston had. Yeah, he, which like makes, he's not gravelly and angry in the same way. But they make him like try to be gravelly and angry, like when he's confronted by the mutants. That could have gone like a lot better. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Like he's very much, I mean, that's a script, right? That's, that's, yeah. you know, he's acting what he's given, but it's like, wow, you know, this guy could probably, I don't know, he could probably like massage the situation like a little better than he is. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's, it's just a weird role because you're walking into the sequel of this just incredibly impactful movie, which again, at a time that sequels weren't really a thing not not like this um and then hired to play somebody who looks like the star of the previous film and basically go through a lot of the same beats as that first film at least until you get to the third act um it, it, it's a weird kind of um that's it, it, a punishing thing to ask an actor to do but apparently according to imdb he was happy to do it because he been playing all these like doctors and lawyers and these very like kind of buttoned up characters and here he got to do something action where you know he's like half naked through most of the movie so um he was happy to do it and he's he's good i mean clearly he never gained the star power of a guy like charlton heston but he's good you know is he done i can't i mean i guess i can look i've got the imdb open right here was he in Guanji? I think he was in Guanji. Now oh, that would be cool because I like Guanji. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that was him in Guanji. It's one of the monster movies he's in. 
um while, while you're checking that out i was um someone that was easily yeah, yeah valley of glungy you're right yeah okay yeah. nice <laughs> so he's already been on the the sci-fi sanctuary podcast <laughs> nice because I remember, I, I, it's his name is so fun to say. You know, you, you don't forget that. He's also been on one yeah. called Killer Fish. Ooh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah! Uh, An Italian, French, Brazilian horror film. <laughs> Brilliant already. That's and on. the Last Shark. Ah. <laughs> what's a, what's which is much one? better in the the Italian name, La Ottimo Squalo. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Brilliant. What What is the um? What's Patton Oswalt's joke? Is it Is it the deathbed? <laughs> He's got some, yeah, he's got some bit about just the movies. Like, that, how could that you that possibly be like intimidating? It's a it's a bed. You want to go to sleep, right? But <laughs> <laughs> I, I the, think I brought this up when the death bed is movie. the ultimate horror. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, I was thinking a, a little. Oh, and I lost that thought. That's too bad. Anyway, someone that was easily replaceable here was um, unfortunately uh, Riley McDowell, who gets replaced with. Um, Oh, what's I mean? He's got all that monkey makeup, so who cares? Kim Hunter's still here. She gets more yeah. lines too, doesn't she? Mm, um, yeah. David Watson. Yeah, there we go. So yeah, I, and and, uh, and they did a, a passable job, I thought, with David Watson. I, I think with uh, apparently both Kim Hunter and uh, Charlton Heston needed needed a lot of cajoling to come back uh, yeah. to the role, and then um, Roddy McDowell apparently was just busy. Uh, he had a, a schedule conflict, so he couldn't do it. Otherwise, he would have been there. Um, does he of come course, back we know for the he, other three? He does. I yeah. thought so, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why it was really weird seeing him not here in this one. Yeah. I think yeah. because Kim Hunter and Maurice Evans were both there, they get That's... away with replacing Roddy McDowell. You could almost not notice. Yeah. You get a whole it, lot if all more. three had been replaced, you'd be like, oh, this is a cheap sequel sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. I, I think that you get a lot of mileage out of uh, Maurice Evans because he, he's just so good. And uh, he's one of the most complex villains, you know, foils that we've had in a movie like this. And then I, I think they did a great job uh, with General Ursus. Um, yes. the, the actor's name James slips. Gregory. James Gregory. There we go. Um, and he's wonderful. I mean, he brings the the gravitas and the anger, and he's fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, I, I did think it's funny. Kim Hunter Zira basically gets three lines of lots of dialogue, uh, three <laughs> scenes of lots of dialogue, and that's it. That's all she's in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but because there were these very talky scenes at the beginning, and I, I put in my notes, oh, they're talking so much because she's not going to be in the rest of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> See, that, that's another of the weird things about this movie, how I said at the beginning that they keep sort of going back and forth between what are we taking from the original that we want to make sure we get out in the sequel? Where are we going to just go completely bonkers and push the envelope even further? Like how are we going to reconcile these things? So you have a lot of Kim Hunter scenes. You have a lot of uh, Maurice Evans, Dr. Zaya scenes. And you get all of that complex, like, ooh, we're making statements about the conflict between, you know, religion and science and mm-hmm. the, the inherent racism in, you know, that, that we're, uh, that, that we attacked in the first movie and now bringing into this movie. But we're getting all of that done in the first act now, like, just to sort of prove to the audience, like, look, we're still the same thoughtful, <laughs> deep Planet of the Apes that you remember. Then we're going to go completely off the rails when we kind of move these characters to the side and we get out to the Forbidden Zone and get to our uh, underground New York. They kind of take a poop on that on the end of the movie. Did anyone like read the credits? Oh, yeah, I did read the credits. Yeah, it was like in 1970, they have credited Don Pedro Cauley as Negro. I'm like, that doesn't even matter in the movie. Yeah. He's, yeah. wearing a, he's wearing a mask. Why? That's really the name that you're putting on the, on him in the credits? Well, because when I was reading the credits, first of all, I saw Victor Bono as Fat Man. And I'm like, really? Are, are we are we just, is this the indignity uh, visited upon Victor Bono? And then like two lines later, like, oh, no, wow, they're doubling down on the terrible, terrible credits here. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Don Pedro Colley, I'm... Sorry that that's how you were credited in this movie. Because he's, he's, he's no, great in this movie. That. That's he's wonderful. Like, 
where he's yeah. doing the, you know, like making them fight. He's that's he's fantastic. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> that doesn't matter. He's just the oh villain guy. God. He's just another mutant. Yeah. Well, and within the film itself, he's treated really both this and the first film have a black character who they treat completely as just mm. one of the members of the group, not. That's what makes mm-hmm. it more wild, you know. So yeah, whoever was yeah. doing the credits was not on the same page as the guys making the film. Cool. Yeah. It's like, oh, this character wasn't given a name. I don't know. How can the audience <laughs> identify them? Fat man <laughs> and Negro. Oh. Yeah, that is unfortunate. Something we also get to see a lot more of in this movie, though, is I think we see some more, a lot more of the ape city in this one. Because the first one, we spend most of the time in sort of the um, the zoo, I guess mm-hmm. we should say, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he escapes and runs through it once, and that's about all we see, right? But in this one, we, we get to spend a little quality time in the ape city. We get yeah, we see the army together. training camp and the council chambers and stuff. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so I I definitely enjoyed that. And um, but then when we get to New York, I'm like. The geography of this, I mean, it makes no sense in the first movie because you got like <laughs> the Statue of Liberty on the Malibu coast, which we, we assume that the thing just rocketed across the entire nation. But uh, <laughs> uh, then we get like, like it's kind of underground and it's kind of a pile of rubble and like none of the landmarks make any sense if you've been to New York City at all. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But, but then you do that that wide shot of the map painting where the eight army is assembling and they see the city. Like they, they see this weird skyline and I'm like, well, but no, we, we just had everything underground. Why, why would you have the skyline with sort of half emerging uh, skyscrapers in front of you? I mean, yeah, there's a rubble layer and then under that is the city, but still you could enter the skyscraper and then go down to the rubble layer. Wouldn't that yeah. be better than the? And, the and like nobody noticed this before, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, it, the geography makes no sense. And the timeline also, I, I I'm still, you know, they keep saying that this is 2,000 years past the, the contemporary time of the like 1995, I think is when it takes place, something like that, or when, you know, when the original launch happened. And they keep saying it's 2,000 years. I thought, and I'm probably mistaken here, I thought in the original movie, far more than 2,000 years had passed. Uh, so I, I actually watched both movies yesterday. Did you? Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, he does say like, oh, you're 2,035 years old. It's only... Oh, that's it. But the okay. original movie, it's implied that it's 2,000 years just because of that's what happens when you travel at the speed of light, which is yeah, surprisingly good science for a sci-fi movie from the 60s. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this film starts saying it was, oh, they went through a slip in time. Yeah. Starts gobbledygooking it in a way that it didn't need to be, I think. Yeah, because this well, crew seemed like they knew that they were in the future, right? Or no, they were surprised that they were in the future. Yeah. Whereas the original crew kind of knew that was going to happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, they knew that time dilation would at least make them, uh, well, make them older. Make yeah, make everything that they knew behind on Earth age yeah, yeah. much faster. You know, um, but the 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 extent of this thing that they went through that changed the track. I think in the book it's something like thirty thousand years or some. You know, well, I think in the book amount. it's never even like, Earth, right? Uh oh, boy, because the uh, the you author know, was. Uh, also, yes, something I did yesterday, something I haven't done in like a decade. Yeah. I watched all the special features on my desk. <laughs> nice. Wow. Right on. Right on. I read the book back in high school. And, and, yeah, I'd say my uh, read of those details uh, have, have uh, Because by. apparently the author was really against the Statue of Liberty scene. He thought it was cheap and lame. Oh, it shows what he knows. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, so the, the timeline, I mean, 2000 years is a very short time to have that dramatic amount of evolution yeah. uh, to, to have, you know, the apes be able to speak and form a civilization, etc. Uh, but I, I'll give them that. And then I guess um, with the uh, with the changing geography, uh, 
the number of nuclear bombs that, you know, made New York look like Malibu. All right. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> I, I guess that's what we have to believe. But yeah, nothing is laid out quite the way you would think maybe. That said, though, going along with the fantasy of the movie, I think those shots are gorgeous. Like those oh, yeah. matte paintings look incredible. The set oh, it all looks they cool. Stunning. And it's another one of those weird places of where they spent their money. Because like you get this, you, you know, great deal more of H City. You get all this underground New York stuff, but then, you know, cheap Halloween store masks on about 90% of the eight characters. It's, that's really distracting. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, my brain's going everywhere today. But <laughs> uh <laughs> Well, I was going to say, Luke, do you want to do you want to get on your monkey box? Because I, I guess we do have to really get into New York and the mutants. But but I don't want to, you know. Yeah, well, I give you your monkey box. I really love um, Ursa as like the gorilla general. And he's got his big helmet and he's giving his war speech. Right. And I'm thinking like, yeah, I want to see apes on the rampage. And our heroes are going to have to try and save the humans from this ape conquest. And then it's just. You know, that's just not what the film ends up being about. And I remember that disappointing me the first time I see it. If now that I know what the film is, <laughs> I can go into the film and be like, okay, I'm going to see all this wild stuff about these underground psychic mutants who worship a bomb and blow up the earth. Great. I love that. But when I went into it thinking, oh yeah, more apes, let's go. And then there's like the whole second act basically is apeless. Mm -hmm. It's kind of disappointing. Yeah, and um, they really do try and point out the gorillas as being like horribly stupid. Like, oh, we're defenseless because oh, they're too yeah, stupid right. for our illusions. I, and I did arrest... think this yeah. last <laughs> night. Gorillas are quite peaceful creatures. And hmm. chimpanzees genuinely fight wars in nature. Hmm. So these films have got their apes backwards. Interesting. Wow. But the, wow. the perception, right, is our oh, chimpanzees, yeah. they're just like us. They're so smart. Gorillas, yeah. big dumb beasts. Yeah, but uh, gorillas are pretty peaceful for the most part, and chimpanzees will like exterminate other tribes of chimpanzees. Wow, well, they certainly look intimidating on the screen. The mm. uh, the gorillas, you know. yeah. So good choice there, dramatically. Hey, may maybe there's another thing that changed in that two thousand years of evolution. <laughs> yeah, after the nuclear holocaust. The other interesting thing is that in the these first two films, the chimpanzees are kind of like the downtrodden lower rung of society like they've got mm. the, the orangutans are on top gorillas mm. are like the military and then chimpanzees are kind of like third-class citizens yeah um whereas most of the sequels i guess because the iconic characters are roddy mcdowell and kim hunter mm. really concentrate on chimps the three recent films it's all chimps all the time um yeah and then in, when we see because even in the old like the next three films it shows the Rise of the Apes, and it's chimpanzees yeah. all the time. Whereas, yeah, yeah it really, it should have been orangutans and gorillas taking over the world. The Very chimpanzees true. coming later. Very so true. it's really chimp speak or arrest him means shoot him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they come in, they, they're, they're shooting everyone, right? And the gorillas, so I'm saying maybe there should be a chimpanzees. They're shooting everyone. Yeah. I'm like, then finally one guy, they're like, arrest him, and then they just shoot him anyway. I'm like, okay, so I guess it means the <laughs> the same thing in this in this kind of speech <laughs> right right um i i did like the scene where we you you say third class citizens which i guess is you know maybe these are the rich kids really but the the, the scene where it's like no the chimps are hippies yeah <laughs> <laughs> they got their piece and love posters they get they get that, that was literally stomp. the scene that made me think this where it's all the chimpanzees sitting and protesting as the gorillas try and get through and it suddenly occurred to me like no this would be the other way around <laughs> yeah interesting but I, I i like how you know it's another one of those moments where um this movie like its predecessor uh really it, it drives them to the audience that okay this is science fiction but we are clearly taking on contemporary concerns i mean mm. uh, obviously nuclear proliferation goes on everybody's mind anyway but having you know the the under 30 crowd being the protesters being the hippies um and, and very specifically protesting what was an impending war or you know a, a brutal attack that, that was coming from the gorillas um i i liked that this movie 
also sort of, um, you know, doubles down on, on its political message. And this is, and I'm using lowercase c conservative, lowercase l liberal, but the idea of somebody like Zayas, uh, very much, you know, conflicted, but still sort of in the pocket of the military saying like, no, we just want things to be exactly as they are. And in order to protect exactly how things are, we will go to these extreme measures uh, because it, it is that important just to protect the things that we hold near and dear. Our ideology, our vision of ourselves is so important that we have to do that. And you've got, you know, the, this handful of relatively powerless people, the, uh, the chimpanzees in this case, scientists, doctors like Dr. Zira, who are just much more interested in the truth with a capital T, wherever that may lead them, than just protecting a thing that somebody says needs to be protected. Um, so I, I, I love when a movie like this can have something that is relevant today, but also very clearly marks it from the time that it was made. The other thing that very clearly marks it from the time that it was made, telephone booths in New York City. Yeah. So uh, that's that's the other little, uh, little tip off to the audience. Like, ah, this is the future vision from the past, <laughs> not not now. I think we still have a few telephone booths hanging out in Japan, like near train stations, especially. Do you really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I just saw an article not that long ago about how the last one was being removed from, uh, I think it was from New York. It might have been another major city like D.C. or somewhere. And uh, yeah, I was kind of surprised by that. <laughs> hey, Luke, when's the last time you were in a telephone booth and not changing into Superman? Um... <laughs> God, I can't even remember. I, I, I mean, I'm not so young that I haven't used a telephone booth, but I think it would have been around middle school, high school, and me and my friends making crank calls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking 2004 or five-ish for me. <laughs> wow, wow. And, and let's face it, you know, now every time you go to a phone booth, you, you are obligated to turn into Superman. So... Yeah, yeah. What other yeah, chance yeah, you're gonna yeah. get? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, let and getting to New York City a little deeper. Uh, <laughs> I guess the thing that stuck out for me this when I was growing up, we went to my my parents' church, and when I was I don't know eight nine, that's when when I was watching this movie a lot, and uh, the the priest changed changed all the music in the hymnal. My dad didn't really like the new guy that much, I think. But um, <laughs> so he just started saying like all these songs you're singing now are like hymns to the bomb. So I actually have memories in my weird childhood brain of us standing in church, like actually singing these hymns. Like like if I think back to my life, I'm actually hearing what, what the hymns sound like in this movie, which is kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> that music is so, it's appropriately weird. It is so weird. It's a little off-putting, and it just keeps going and going and going. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, you know that, that's something that also did not evolve well in two thousand years. Yeah, this this is this music's eh, a little bit of a step down from the first one. I have Jerry doing the music in this one, but it's not bad. But I several yeah. times like, oh, that almost almost sounds yeah almost sounds like. But yeah, with, with the weird hymnal music, they they certainly did stand out a bit. Right, right. Oh. How about the bomb itself? Just like a big gold bullet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Alpha Omega thing's kind of weird. I guess that's yeah. like, yeah. Well, though, what was it? The um, American A-bombs, they were like painting things on, I guess, weren't they? Well, if, if I wanted to give the film more credit than it deserves, 
we could say that that crediting of Fat Man was a reference to Fat Man, the bomb that was dropped on oh, Nagasaki. Oh, there we go. So Victor Bono was in fact playing one half of the uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, arsenal from World War II. Yeah, the only two <laughs> bombs ever dropped in in anger. Yeah, yeah. Well, there I, don't you know, go. I guess in 1970, it probably was more common knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, I now think you... the names would have been out by then. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the name was definitely. I'm just like I'm like more people would have known it then than now. You know. Mm. Now it's just bombs are dropped, right? You don't they don't personalize them anymore, which is probably for the best. Let's not personalize our bombs is probably yeah. a good rule of thumb, but uh <laughs> they, they did in this one. The um I, I love the control system for it, which is like some proto, you know, Kryptonian stuff. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not a similar idea, not quite as elegant as what we see in the Fortress of Solitude, but very close to that. And um, and I do like how you know Charlton Heston knows exactly which one to push to it you know like the those things one. aren't labeled the big red one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Those <laughs> things aren't labeled they're just they're weird crystals and okay Who's well that, that adds one? to my theory that he's just been joining their church for the past like month it's good he's learned how good. to do the bombs yeah he yeah, the songs. Taking, yeah he knows the songs he's taking communion with them he's maybe putting a few bucks in the collection plate when it goes around yeah well, the song we board. didn't hear is like Press the green one to put the firing pin. Press the red one to launch. We'll blow up That's the bomb. Good. This bomb doesn't launch. Mm. This one just this one just blows up the world. Which they're like, it's got cobalt casing. I'm like what? I got co- I cobalt case strings on my guitar. Are they gonna blow up the world? <laughs> they could. You don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know the ones on there won't, but. Uh... <laughs> But that's, but, I, I mean, I, I think for the time that this was made, that that's a pretty appropriate thing that, you know, the fear of that nuclear proliferation anyway is like, okay, all it takes is for one more scientist to come up with a much more powerful bomb. That's the one that can destroy the world. Because, like, it, it, it's just academic that you've got tens of thousands of nuclear warheads spread out around the world anyway. Anybody could hit a button that would make them all launch or launch at each other and, you know, make the planet uninhabitable for, well, forever and ever. So, you know, is it such a stretch for the audience in 1970 to think like, cool, and now here's the one off the assembly line that is so dangerous, that is so awful, that it will, you know, melt the atmosphere along with it, wiping out everything. Mm. I mean, I, I can't think of any other movie that I've seen where you end with dissolve to white and then this depressing <laughs> few lines of narration. And that's it. Go home, audience. See ya. Sleep tight. We've had a couple of destructions of Earth, Matt, haven't we? Um, yeah, sure. Hitchhikers probably doesn't count, though. The movie one doesn't, no, because they put it back together again. Oh, right. Yes. That's a um, different one, kind of. Space is the place. That is a great destruction of Earth. Oh, yeah. About Cracks the same time. like a watermelon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's about the same time. Do you have any other? Oh, well, and I guess, you know, the popular one now is uh, Don't Look Up, uh, which mm. was brilliant. Yeah. And a few years ago, is there a Melancholia? Is that the one where the the two, the two large, is large Van Trier were two the planets colliding? When worlds collide, there's one. Oh, when worlds oh, collide. There you go. We did that. So, nice, uh, nice. It happens from time to time. You do have to blow up the world. I don't know. I, I do. I mean, of course, I couldn't call the ending like better than the first one, but it, it does have a certain audaciousness I really respect, which could yeah. just be Charlton well, Heston being get me out of here. But <laughs> the first one is bleak in a very real way, whereas this one is bleak in a like the first time I saw it, I'm just sat there like, huh? Did they just do that? <laughs> What? There's three more films in this box. <laughs> yeah. But that's a, you know, again, that, that's why I think it's so cool is just you, you do something completely insane because you're already up against one of the most memorable, mind-screwing endings in cinema history. Yeah. So what are you going to do next? All right. We're just, we're going whole hog. We're you know, we destroyed humanity in the first movie off screen. Now we're going to do it again. 
But what I loved, and the, the thing that I walked away from this movie that was the, the, the kind of difficult lesson that I'm trying to reconcile is that, all right, a, as the human audience watching this movie, our sympathies are with Taylor and Brent. Like, the mutants are no good no matter what. The guerrilla army coming down on top of this, they're no good no matter what. So are we supposed to be rooting for the detonation of the bomb? Are we supposed to be rooting for Taylor to hit that button? Because the only good solution to this is just to wipe everybody out. No, the hero right of this up until movie he is... presses it, I thought they were trying to stop it. <laughs> what you, you thought who was trying right to stop up until it. Taylor pressed it? I thought Taylor and Brent were trying to stop the bomb going off. Oh, but at a certain point, they looked at each other and they were just like, eh, yeah, yeah, this is, yeah, we're just going to end it. Whoever gets to that button first, you got to push it. Because... That's a pretty heavy plan to make silently. Brent could have been thinking something different. <laughs> that, that's, that's the ultimate. He's Not, like, I'll distract yeah. you, you stop the bomb, right? And Taylor's like, okay, I'll blow up the bomb, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, whatever was going through Brent's mind, it wasn't for very long because then yeah. we get that really gruesome shot of about fifteen bullet holes on him up against the uh, the wall there. That was that was intense. And this movie, by the way, I, I'm sure uh, Matt, you read it in uh, the IMDb trivia, got a G rating. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and the thing that would have given them a PG rating is if they stuck with their original plan to have a half ape, half human baby at some point. And I, I don't know how that would have worked into the plot, but they're like, oh, no, 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 no. That's a bridge too far. That'll <laughs> give us a PG rating. Let's just stick with destroying the planet and having bloody James Franciscus <laughs> splattered against the wall. Um, and, and not to mention the indignities shown toward uh, Nova. This movie has got it out for her in like a really uncomfortable way. Oh yeah, I was like, she's so traumatized with yeah. it. Like she might, yeah, it's probably probably for the best to put her out of her misery at this point. Yeah, I yeah. did love when she finally talked though. That was a great moment. Yeah, that was dramatic and and earned. Yeah, mm. um, the Transformers films have tried to do that a couple of times with Bumblebee, but uh... it doesn't feel anywhere near as earned as it does here. Uh, <laughs> Although the uh, the newer ones uh, d- does kind of one up it when you know Caesar speaks, of course. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah, I was going to say no. The true protagonist of the first two films is Doctor Zayas because he says this guy is going to destroy us, and it he does. does. Yeah, <laughs> does. Yeah, Doctor yeah. Zayas was right. You, he was right all along. <laughs> He's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, I don't know. I guess we can like go ahead and like place this in the pantheon of of the ape films. Uh, Luke, you're still a little little book. You've seen all of them once now. I I have seen all of them once. Well, I've seen this one twice. I've seen the original many times. Okay. But the next three, I think I've only seen once, and I don't remember them very well at all. Yeah, um, so to me, to me, both the original five film series and the more recent trilogy start with a masterpiece and then have diminishing returns they're weird diminishing returns so let's take something they're still like, I don't good know. like this, think... this film is still good yeah yeah I, just, I would go all the way to like, say i like watching the fifth one but yeah it's, yeah but it's like <laughs> you, you know i i like watching some pretty bad films but <laughs> the original planet of the apes doesn't fall into that it's, it's genuinely one of the like best and most important films of all time and i don't think you can say that about like conquest of the planet of the apes <laughs> i wonder if in a weird way this kind of is the first like planet of the apes is most of the way there but this is kind of the first just full-blown like dystopian 70s sci-fi mm. well yeah. that's, that's what i was saying yeah. it feels like it, if you cut the apes out and just had the underground city of mutants who worship the bomb this could be right there on the shelf next to Soylent Green, next to um, Logan's mm-hmm. Run, just next to all these bleak sci-fis from the 70s. Definitely. One of, yeah. the, uh, one of the documentaries I watched on the Blu-ray yesterday was talking about people always give the credit to Star Wars, but Planet of the Apes is the original mega merchandise sci-fi franchise. Hell yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, a Spock helmet. Oh, sorry, I'm thinking about Spock there. That's that's Star Trek. But uh, <laughs> I was thinking of Spock helmets. I was that or an Ace mask. But you get both. Oh of those man, why, why didn't they have an Ursus helmet? That that's what I need now. You, you take the Spock helmet, you just repackage it, new vinyl lettering, Ursus right on top. I put, Does it um, have a monkey front? I mean, a gorilla front. Could, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I put a picture on. You probably didn't see it, Matt, on the Twitter of in the new Mario football game. You can put a helmet on Donkey Kong that is definitely a Planet of the Apes gorilla helmet. <laughs> There's no way it's an accident. <laughs> uh, that's so cool. Yeah, I can, I can definitely roll with that. But yeah, I just, yeah, this one is one of those movies that's just too formative for me, I guess, to look at completely like objectively. Cause, you know, again, age seven, eight, nine, I just kept running this uh, slightly grainy, you know, VHS tape again from. The superstation, yeah. Well, yeah, if I'd been like you and I'd seen them as a double bill from the start, I might be different because I'd seen the first one so much and then came to the second one. Yeah, yeah. So to me, it was kind of all one story. I think I was, you know, I was always confused why I had to watch the first scene at the beginning of, of this one. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw well, again, that. Again, because people again? just weren't used to sequels, right? Yeah, I could have been a little, like, um, slicker with my tape editing, I suppose. But oh, It's well. like when we... Um, Son of Kong, how they had to get it out within the same year because they didn't think audiences would remember the film. Wow. Yeah, as far as American wow. films, is this okay? We so in the 30s, 40s, we have a lot of the like, like weird the universal kind of, monsters, yeah, yeah, yeah. or the, the, the sequels that don't necessarily follow each other. Son of Kong followed King Kong, which we thought was really weird for you know the early 30s. Mm. Like, whoa, it directly follows where the thin man. They don't really mention the previous films much or something, you know, a, a, yeah. a cowboy pot boiler thing. That, can cowboys boil? Yeah, they boil pots. Anyway, sure. um, they yeah. boil pots of beans. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> okay, uh, so anyway, you know, like, even if it's the same cowboy, you know, you don't reference the other one. So right. I'm trying to think of other films between this and that that really do reference the previous film. I mean, uh, it's not quite American, but The Bonds. Yeah, but yeah, would have been starting are... off here. But that's the no, because like Blofeld comes back and stuff. Yeah, but, but even then, the but those stories are treated. They're fairly so standalone. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, yeah. Like if I you mean, watch this movie without seeing the first one, it's going to be relatively confusing. Uh, well, yeah. um, you could say that uh, the Odyssey followed on from uh, the Iliad. So sequels. Have been <laughs> well, I, I think what, what, what we're trying to say here, though, I know, I know, <laughs> is that, that, that what's important is that, you know, we haven't had until, gosh, I mean, honestly, after Star Wars, that you, you have planned franchises where mm. a studio goes in and says, we're making three films, two TV series, somebody else has got the comic book rights, the video game rights. You know, it's not until after Star Wars that that really happened. I did wonder in this one, though, did the writers throw in that little line about, oh, there's some sort of crack in time because they had an inkling mm -hmm. they could do a third one? Oh, interesting. Interesting. If it had been, yeah, yeah. made 10 years later, I would 100% assume that's what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because it was released in 1970, I'm like, Oh, is that just an, a fortunate coincidence that they then used in the next one? Or Very did well someone have an idea like, oh, well, they're paying me for a second. I better leave in a way for them to pay me for right. a third. <laughs> right. You know what? You're, act you're actually getting... I, mean, I don't remember what they said at the beginning of the third one, but yeah, having watched the first two basically as one movie for most of my childhood, mm -hmm. that line didn't really stick with me. So I always stuck with the original time dilation thing. So then when I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I didn't see the third one until I was like 20-something. So then I'm like, mm -hmm. wait a minute, how... The how are they in like you know, modern day America if there's time dilation? So I assume like the nuclear blast somehow propelled them backwards through time. I, I don't remember how they explain it, if, if at all, at the beginning of the third one. So, yeah, I guess we'll find out soon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But uh, yeah, when you have weird, you know, sci-fi slash fantasy, it's sort of like, I don't know. I, I it is kind of hard to say how much how much hard sci-fi's in Planet Apes since they're all running around in monkey suits, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's pretty hard sci-fi. The first one, yeah, I'm sitting here thinking, yeah. well, the first one actually is pretty hard sci-fi when you get down to it. Even though... I like they they go to a lot of effort to not make it a silly monkey suit film. Sure, like, the makeup is great. Yeah. Oh, that's something else I learned watching the um the documentaries. 
So they did a makeup test before they could get funding from the films to prove, mm-hmm. like, yeah, we can make these apes believable and not ridiculous. Um, and Dr. Zira was played by Nova's actress. Oh, oh uh, imagine Manarison. being brought in to have this yeah. really intelligent speaking yeah. scientist role. It's like, uh, we're not going to give you that role, but you can be a mute in a bikini if you want. <laughs> <laughs> hey, even with that, though, she she became iconic through it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it works. I mean, the personal disappointment for sure. And you've got to you've yeah. got to give him credit. She still wears a lot more than Charlton Heston does in these films. Very true. Yeah, you yeah, even get to see him fuck ass nude in the first film. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, with the loincloth, that's not much. So, yeah. <laughs> but um, well, um, so I guess I was gonna say how much hard sci-fi remains in this. I mean, we've completely wonked out like all sense of reason of time space new york city's geography things like that uh have we delved does that does that plunge us into fantasy a bomb that actually will destroy well i guess you can still call that sci-fi but did how Psychic off the rails do we mutants, go? i guess is pretty wild yeah uh, it, it's like a tos amount of sci-fi to me okay yeah that makes sense um, like we were saying with the first one, like a few alterations, you could have made the first one basically into a TOS episode. They didn't mm. just, you know, would have had a different ending. <laughs> and and the, the, the well, we've had Red Shirt or two get, you know, often lobotomized and put into the museum, maybe. So, yeah. So, still still works there. Um, the one thing with the mutants, I, I, they're all wearing masks, but they're all mutants. I, I guess their skin just gets infected or something. Well, I also, <laughs> at first, I thought, all oh, right, they were using illusions. And then you see they're holding rubber masks. And I'm like, oh, right. why do they need the masks? <laughs> if they can make a giant bleeding-eyed statue of God fall on someone with their psychic powers, surely right. they can touch up their skin. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I guess that's where I'm falling on. They must have, like, infection problems. Because they got gloves, too, right? So Yeah. 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 Fully yeah. covering robes. Um, I did notice the, the lady that takes pills in the bath, uh, she did not show her true face unto God when dying. Mm-hmm. Not not when dying, but in the sanctuary scene, she did. Oh right, so, right. But um, yeah. when, when when the guy, you know, when they, they find they, her in the tub at the end. Yeah, well, I'm saying when they off the guy that um is making them fight psychically, he he has mm-hmm. he, as he's dying, he pulls off his mask. So I'm like, right. well, she's taking pills. She had way more had time, time to do that, and she yeah. didn't bother at all. So <laughs> exactly, I guess he was more religious, uh, something like that. Maybe. Yeah. She would say, I'll take this mask off when I know the pills are working. And then gone. Yeah. What what inanimate object would you choose to worship? <laughs> That's oh, really I mean, good. You've seen my shrine to Taylor Swift over here and my other shrine to Princess Peach. Do they count? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sure. <laughs> sure. One of them. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, boy, it, you know, I mean, uh, a Mac Pro. I mean, I, I think that's, you know, could be just as creative or destructive. So, yeah. Uh, is it faith and obsession or obsession in that case, though? Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take a page out of George Carlin's book or, and just worship the sun, I think. That's <laughs> not an inanimate object. Egyptians. Yeah. No, it's not an animal. You can't yeah. choose that. It's a living being. Matt, you worship yeah. guitars. Yeah, that there, you sense. Go. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. I could turn my video to that corner, and it, it would be yeah. Okay, good point. <laughs> One day, his guitars are going to end your marriage. So. <laughs> One but, day, um, she'll find out just how much you've spent. <laughs> yeah, you, you sell some, you get some different ones. <laughs> you don't sell them; you just give them away. <laughs> <laughs> Any uh, final points you want to put out on the apes? Uh, for me or for uh, for Luke? This is an open question. This open everyone. question. Yeah. I mean, uh, look, I I think this movie it, it's very weird. Uh, you know, Luke, you mentioned the Bond movies earlier, and uh, a few years ago I did this 
podcast series, so rewatch in order, it's going through everything. And I've seen those movies so many dozens of times, but it's a different process when you're kind of forced to sit down and watch it critically, come back with notes, really give it some thought and have a chat about it, you know? And it amazed me how some of those movies I felt held up better than my original estimation and how some of them simply did not hold up well uh, based on kind of the, you know, the, the popular consensus about some of them. Um, and, and this, by comparison, really surprised me because I love it. So you had the perfect word, Matthew, the audacity mm-hmm. of this movie. It just goes in so many weird directions with so much earnestness of like, we are making statements here, people. We're going to talk about religion and science and politics. And, you know, the, you got the youth movement and then you've got the threat of nuclear annihilation and they have a lot of violence thrown in. Like they're just going all out with everything. Also faced against this incredibly iconic movie that they just made. And I'm sure shocked every studio head, uh, like, oh, wow. So this kind of thing the audience really wants. I guess we need to figure out how to make another one. How about literally another one, another Apes movie? Um, So while this movie is not as great as the first one, it's actually far better than I think people gave it credit for. Mm. Um, I I, I think Rotten Tomatoes, it's ranked at like 37 percent 38 oh wow that's yeah 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 really look and i don't think that's accurate at all i i think you have to put it into context you have to have seen the original you have to think through like what are the challenges to make a sequel to something that was not planned to have a sequel and Mm. in 1970 it's not like now where like every franchise just decides like we're just going to create another timeline and we're going to do this and we can bring these characters back from the dead. I'm like, no, movies are not made like that 50 years ago. Um, so that there's something truly great about seeing a movie like this warts and all and just appreciating how nuts it is. So if the original is a 10 out of 10, I think this one is easily a seven, maybe leaning toward an eight. Yeah, I think that's fair. Just, you know, just because they 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 had the balls to do it, you know. Again, one thing uh, that helped me is of course basically watching these as a complete a, you know, a duology. set with a duology. It's hard mm-hmm. for me to separate this from the second one. And then much later if I did get to the later ones, um you know, we do get kind of an uptick in at least filmmaking probably in the third and fourth one, so <laughs> yeah not the not quite the audacity the third one is it's is very you know it's like oh now we can like use like normal sets and stuff and mm. you know i mean that one is quite cheap the fourth one gets a little more expansive and the, also, the, fifth the third one, one gets, basically just has two apes in it right that's my point that's you yeah. have the two apes you just yeah. run them through like basically a thriller story i mean you you, you got the budget of like clute or something now right <laughs> <laughs> the, the fourth getting a little more expanding expansive while also you know borrowing like mexico city's bizarro architecture as as part of their budget as many other films do and see total Mm. recall but (laughs) yeah but um yeah one the one thing that this one does for me also is just when i did get to the third and fourth was oh these are really good i've you know just since i've been enjoying uh without quotations the second one for so long (laughs) (laughs) Luke, you want to run? You 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 got a thought you want to run before wrapping? Um, you want to wrap no, before you run? The only other thing, brief thought I had was you don't often see it in films, but it's very common in video games. the The protagonist of the first one will have to come back in a cameo role at the end of the second one. because uh, in a game, uh-huh. like you spend the game becoming really powerful, in the sequel they either have to replace the character. Or come up with some bullshit reason why you lose all your powers. Right. You very often get there's a new guy each game, but then sometimes you meet the old guy. Um, because I feel like that doesn't happen often in films. So it's kind of cool seeing it, especially because they look the same. It really is just like when you meet the Pokemon trainer from Red and Blue at the end of Gold and Silver. It's just 
They're like, oh, look, it's you, but a little bit different. Right. I guess we kind of do that with Luke Skywalker in the end of movies. Kind of. Yeah. I but mean, Last like, Jedi kind of work. I mean, he's I mean, it's not much more in a cameo in there, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and Ray's quite different. So at least in that case, we're not just going 20% different, I guess. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Sorry, I'm the, 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 last, the last Star Wars movie he's made, The Last Jedi. I'm just assuming that one there. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah, I, that's one that kind of does that. I'm thinking uh, some of the Marvel movies certainly have done that a bit. We're, we're going to get that at some point, I bet, when one of the actors just decides mm. they want to like show up again for a bit. I, right. I didn't, yeah. How's, how's the new Thor run? Does, does that run anything? It's like nowhere that? near as bad as people made out. <laughs> it's not Dark World. <laughs> <laughs> how, how much Hemsworth do we get? Is he just. Oh, you get a lot of Hemsworth. Okay. And he so is big. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just. I was sitting here wondering if they tried to play that thing with him, but apparently. Oh, not, no. So. no. No, okay. no, no. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, we'll end the things today. Uh, John, you want to tell them where you're at? Sure. Uh, find me at podcast.roddenberry.com. Uh, that's where all the shows that I do. Primarily, you know, Mission Log is the flagship show, but there's a lot of other stuff. If you're into Star Trek or not, there's Trek Files, there's Sci-Fi 5, uh, there's Mission Log Live, um, you've got Fanatics, you got all kinds of stuff coming from Roddenberry Podcast. So that's where you can find me. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find us on Twitter at MLSFS pod. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, just search Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary. Please do give us a like and subscribe and a rate and a review and all of that bollocks. And um, if you want to help support the podcast and keep it online, you can go to patreon.com slash podcastio podcastios. And there you'll find links to the other podcasts me and Matt make, like Time Enough podcast, a podcast about the Twilight Zone, like Oral Hygiene, a podcast where Matt reviews whatever he feels like reviewing that day. Like Luke Loves Pokemon, where we talk about a different Pokemon family every week. Like The Monster Mash, where we talk about Monster Hunter monsters. Or like Game Game Show, a game show about games. Where, as Matt describes it, four British guys just insult each other for an hour. Okay. So, uh, Luke, you got your crystal switch to hit? Hit the green one, two. Pause the podcast. Hit the red one, two. End the podcast. In one of the countless billions of galaxies in the universe lies a medium-sized podcast network. And one of its podcasts, a green and significant podcast, is now over.